You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, I have a guest, Steve Robbins. He's the head, the co-host of the Get It Done Guy podcast. Uh, he also, probably much more than Al Gore, has been instrumental in uh, helping to get the internet on its feet and running. So I'd like to ask him about that. And uh, he's got a pretty extensive resume of experiences. So Steve, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. And by the way, the name is Stever, S-T-E-V-E-R. Stever, oh. yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's so not, not just a, a typo. Pet name. <laughs> not when people like they don't put you in a headlock and give you a noogie and call you Stever. That's actually your name. Yeah. Well, you know, it started as an email address once upon a time, and people who say they've been using the internet for a long time, I have to laugh at them because if they've been using it as long as I have, I would already know their name. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, when I got my first email address, and and all I will say about when is that it was before 1980. Uh, when I got my first really? email address, oh yeah. Uh, I had to choose a six-letter username, and Steve was taken, so I chose Steve R. And back in those days, uh, a lot of the, not a lot, but there were, there were hosts on the internet, it was called the ARPANET at the time, which didn't require a password or an affiliation. The assumption was if you had access to the ARPANET, then you were trustworthy and you should be just given an account on whatever the computer was. So I was Stever at several different hosts on the ARPANET. Wow. I was on the internet in 89. I dialed up with the modem and I would go like, I think through CompuServe and I would go onto bulletin boards and you know, everything was text and it would scroll just at, you know, 300 baud was like maybe reading speed. And I remember when 1200 baud came out, it was much faster than reading speed, but that's what I was on. So I was on pretty early, but maybe not as early as you. Ooh, yeah, you, you were, you were there. Not, not at the, not at the very beginning, but you were certainly a, a solid second generationer. Um, <laughs> When and was the, the beginning, by the way? I don't know much about uh, earlier than than me. Like what? Like literally, were you there at the very inception? And what was that? What no, was going no, on? no. I'm not that old. Uh, no. <laughs> however, no. The well, the ARPANET was created as a research network. It was done by the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Department of Defense, and the idea was to build a communications infrastructure that would be resilient in the face of attack and war that could reroute. Mm-hmm communications so you could knock part of it out and the rest of it would still keep operating. Contrary to some of the reports that I have read written by people who have no idea what they're talking about, it was not built as this giant freedom of expression thing. It was not built to share knowledge widely. No, it it was built basically so we could get into wars and still communicate as we needed to, to pass intelligence around the country. Oh, wow. And that was, I believe, in the 1960s. And it grew to encompass several military bases and a few different research labs and several of the colleges and educational institutions around the country. And then it didn't really take off commercially until the mid-90s when the web rose to prominence. But even before that, there was a thing called Usenet, which was another network that uh, that you could have news groups on and news group and Usenet sort of, I don't know exactly what happened, but somehow it seemed to have gotten folded into the internet proper and stopped existing as a separate network and a separate transport layer. But uh, these are, these are historical details and, and modern people will hear them and go, why are you, why are you talking about that weird stuff? We just, we just turn it on and it works. Uh, well, when did email start? Oh, email. As far as I know, email has actually been around almost as long as the, uh, almost as long as the ARPANET. Um, I don't know when it started. It already existed by the time that I first started using uh, that. I've, that I first started using the ARPANET, but it was it was kind of the first social app. And of course, the 
rather amusing part is, is we haven't really advanced much beyond it in the intervening, <laughs> the intervening years. It's still, uh, you know, it, I mean, and, and chat apps, basically chat and email are both technologies that, that go back almost as long as the entire internet, the particular chat platform or the particular email platform has changed from year to year. But conceptually, you know, a, a lot of the billion dollar companies of today, like Slack, you know, people are like, oh, Slack, billion dollar company. Slack is a basically a direct ripoff of, of IRC, which was an open source, open domain thing in the mid nineties. You know, it's, it's, there's, I, I hate to say it with all due, with all due respect for, you know, the people who have made a billion dollars off of Slack, uh, you know, not only is it not rocket science, it's not even an original idea, you know, even yeah. down to the hashtag being used to designate channels. That's all straight IRC. Interesting. So what, uh, well, you know, I make the sign of the cross here, but what's your thought of the internet nowadays? Well, you know, as, as I don't think there's any great secret, if you read my writing and listen to my writing, I think that it's a mixed blessing. And I think that the bad parts dramatically outweigh the good. At this point, um, yes, there there has been a bunch of good, and uh, we have also rushed. And I don't understand this at all, but we have rushed to put our entire critical survival infrastructure on top of the internet. And although it was designed to withstand a nuclear war, it was not designed to withstand hacking. It was not designed to withstand certain types of natural disasters in key locations. And I think it is. I think that it is a it has become essentially a single point of failure for our entire civilization, and there are bad actors out there, and by bad actors I mean different state actors who literally are capable of bringing down our entire civilization should they decide to do so, because when you have your water purification and your electricity and your traffic navigation all hooked up to systems that are mostly insecure and that are designed in such a way that at this point, it's probably pretty much impossible to secure a lot of them. Like it just, it just couldn't be done. Um, you know, I, I think that's a bad thing. And I also think that when you add to that, what we've been seeing with social manipulation and the, you know, the, the hacking of elections and so on, I think it just, it just compounds it. We're, we've essentially put both our physical and our civic infrastructure at risk. And people say, oh, but now I can call grandma. You know, it's so easy to keep up with grandma. And my response is, you know, if grandma's not important enough to you to pick up a phone and dial 10 digits, grandma's really not important enough to use a transport layer that also carries with it the, the, the chance for collapse of civilization. You know, it just, it just to me, to me, the, the extremely minor convenience of calling grandma just isn't, isn't, it does not counterbalance the, the, oh my gosh, you know, the, the elections may literally be hacked by a foreign power so that they can put whoever they want to in, in the White House or in the House of, I don't, I don't know what the British equivalent is, but I guess it's, it's coming out as we're recording this. Just yesterday, I think I, I was watching some stuff on TV where it turns out that, that oh, gee, the Brexit, the Brexit vote in Britain may have in fact been largely driven by the Soviet Union. Not the, sorry, not the Soviet Union. Wow, I'm dating myself. Uh, by Russia. <laughs> by Russia, essentially hacking and manipulating social media, uh, you know, and I, I kind of look at this and I go, I, I go, you know, I, I'm not sure what the internet gives me that's worth that, that's worth that kind of risk. Yeah, it makes sense when you look around and you see how people interact with it, you know, just on a consumer basis, what do you think is the good and the bad for the typical consumer? What are they getting from using it and what negative things are happening to them? that maybe they're not even aware of by using it. Sure. Well, the good stuff, you know, it, it, it genuinely is, um, you know, it genuinely is good for keeping in touch with people if you don't want to pick up a phone and dial it. And because we seem to have raised a generation of people who, who have phone anxiety and are not comfortable picking up phones, um, you know, this is, this is a nice crutch to use instead. Um, it also clearly has given us access to a level of media and entertainment that, you know, a, I will say one thing for sure. We are living in an absolute golden age of entertainment right now. You know, the, the amount of high quality stuff is so substantial that at this point, every now and then I just, I just kind of ponder, oh my gosh, like, wouldn't it be, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to have five lifetimes so I could actually sit down and binge watch all of the stuff that's on my, gee, I really want to binge watch this stuff list. So, you know, it's given us those things. It's allowed automation of a lot of things that, 
you know, that again, if you, if you ignore, if we actually had decent security and if you ignore the hostile state actors, you know, it's really awesome to be able to link systems together, to build businesses, you know, a one per one person. And I know this because I'm doing it. Uh, you know, one person can set up a business and automate many of the pieces of the administration of a business, the billing, the order entry, everything with systems that can just be hooked together that are available on the web. And I mean, it's, it's really fantastic. And, and it's opened up a lot of opportunity for people to be able to create small businesses. Now, the downside, there's a, and like I said, I actually think the downsides outweigh the upsides. Uh, the, the commerce downside, uh, for example, which is a downside about a lot of things on the internet, is the internet really does make the world flatter. Where once upon a time, businesses used to compete with other businesses in their geographic realm. Now, everyone worldwide is competing with whoever number one currently is. So, you know, that's great if you're number one, but the problem is that it used to be that a business was only competing locally. So it had a chance to get good relative to its local competitors, develop a solid financial base, and then expand outside of its local area and have a chance of being competitive. But at this point, because, you know, like, like for example, Amazon, no one can, I don't think, you know, and I, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think that it is possible at this point to create a competitor to Amazon because Amazon has done an unbelievably good job of developing phenomenal logistics capability. Just, you know, I have so much respect for that company in terms of, of what they have accomplished and are able to do. Um, I have a tremendous amount of non-respect when it comes to their employment practices and, and a lot of other things, but, but in terms of, of their actual achievement of like, wow, they are, they are amazing. However, you, there's no way you could compete against them, even if you could somehow get enough capital to be able to create the kind of infrastructure you would need to compete against them, just the learning that it would take operationally. I mean, they have 20 years, 30 years almost, of learning uh, under their belts, and they've been very, very good at learning. So not only is it learning, it's really high quality learning. And I don't know how you compete with that, because yes, no matter where- they're, uh, they're constantly optimizing everything from what- the size and right. shape of their buttons and the order process and all that. Oh, well, and things like, you know, Amazon search results. It's no coincidence that when you search for something, the first, the first, you know, five pages that come up are the links to the, if you're searching for a product, are the, are the product pages on Amazon. I mean, that's not, you know, that's, that's not necessarily because Amazon has the best pages. Um, really? I actually have a, I actually have a friend who is on the search team at, at Google and we were talking about this and we got into something huh. of an argument. Um, her, the way, the way that she put it, she said, well, you know, those pages are the best. And, and I said, by what wow. measure? Because, because it seems to me if like, let's say that I'm searching for a widget, you know, Billy Bob's widget blog that has five readers, but, but in which he does a masterful job of doing a 2000 word write-up of widgets that contain all of the information you need, not biased by manufacturer's payments, not biased by the need to make a profit, but a really good solid review is never going to get ranked by Amazon. It is never going to get ranked by Google because sure. the things Google looks for are things like, oh, lots of user comments. Oh, lots of detailed product specifications, whatever, whatever. And the things she described to me were, th were I'm like, you know, she's like, you know, well, of course Amazon has the best pages, but, but let's flip that around. They are defining best as having all the things Amazon has. They're not defining well, what, uh, the, the, what they're not doing is going out to individuals and saying, what do you want to see in a page and tuning uh, okay. Google search ranks to actually give people what's most useful. What they are doing is they're saying, oh, look, we list get Amazon at the top. People go to Amazon. They then put in links to Amazon. And by the way, I mean, if you look at all the stuff that Amazon does, you know, Amazon is a is an incoming link factory. They know, you know, they all of the stuff they've done, their author pages, their affiliate programs. AdWords, all of these things generate incoming links to Amazon. And those incoming links then compound with the algorithms that Google has to give them search results, to, to give them high placement in the search results. So, you know, at this point, if someone better than Amazon were to come along, I don't know how they'd even show up. Like, I don't know how they could come to anyone's attention without having, you know, a multi-billion dollar advertising budget. And even then, Amazon is a major advertiser on Google and, uh, while Google claims that they don't bias their search results in favor of their advertisers, 
Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I believe that as far. Let's let's put it this way: if they're willing to put a billion dollars on that, such that it is fa- such that if if anyone can prove that they have biased their search results to either eliminate or favor a particular business, um, uh, if they're willing to put to put a billion dollars on that, um, I might believe it. But I don't think they're. I you know I don't think they would be willing to put a billion dollars on that. No, you know, it would be nice if the. Uh, I think they're willing to tell us about they have a policy. <laughs> it would be nice if the U.S. Department of Justice had a billion dollar bounty for someone to, uh, you know, if they can prove that that's happening, then they would share in the, you know, the massive suit against the uh, Google, if there was to be one where they would try to get a, uh, you know, a settlement judgment in the billions and share it with the person that that figured it out. So, so the other thing, the other, like another thing about the internet that I think people don't realize, uh, and there was a great article. In fact, let me, um, boy, I, I, I bookmarked it. I wonder, uh, there was a great article very recently that essentially pointed out that a lot of what we call fame, a lot of who ends up in the top 10 lists of places actually has nothing to do with what is or isn't good. I mean, the, the internet has, uh, and, and this has largely been driven by ads, by the way, it's because all of the stuff is ad supported that these are the case, but the internet is largely driven by top 10 and trending lists. And, sh- and I, I, people call it sharing. It's not sharing. It's exhibitionism. It is mass communication. Huh. It is, it is one too many communication. Sharing is when someone wants something from you and they come to you and they say, Hey, could you share your ball with me? Sharing is not, Oh, look, I have a ball. Let me throw it at your head and you better appreciate it. Cause I'm sharing. Sharing is an sharing hey, is I- a response. A response to an inbound thing. Sharing is not exhibitionism. So you mean, okay, so I tend to share content that I find useful or interesting, but am I in the minority and most people share no, 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 top, it's 10, not even, top 10 it's, lists of stuff, so it's they're uh, doing it, well, it for a different reason? Well, first of, all, first of all, I'm actually just objecting to the word sharing because mm-hmm. posting things you find useful is still not sharing. It's broadcasting. The word right. share does not mean I'm going to just spew what I think is important in your direction. That's not what sharing is. Sharing okay. is when you give someone something they want. Not, not when you give something something that you think they should want, but when someone comes to you and says, hey, you've got this beautiful Maserati. Would you share that with me for the weekend? Because I'd like to drive a Maserati around for the weekend. That's sharing. Sharing is not you coming up to my house going, hey, get my Maserati. Hey, no, no, get my Maserati. I'm sharing it with you. That's not sharing. Sharing is driven by the person, by the recipient. Sharing, and I'm talking about colloquial sharing, like what the word used to mean right, prior to the rise of social media. It's like liking people, right? Being a database connection in an advertising database has nothing to do with what we mean when we say the word like. But, but you know, the high tech, the social media world has hijacked the word like, just like they've hijacked the word friend. I mean, they have taken so all of these right, words they've, of they've, human relationship and turned them into transactional data collection words. I see what you mean. They've, they've taken it, made it, change it into a broadcast sense of the word and therefore then they could harvest it you know these interactions because it's in the public or semi-public area okay well and right and they, they encourage people to share so what happens is that the internet acts as a tremendous amplifier so if something makes it onto the top 10 list for any reason just because like randomly it got put there because it was a slow day and nothing else made it there once it's on the top 10 list when you have audiences that are in the sizes of millions or billions of eyeballs well, what do they look at? They look at the top 10 list because there's too, way too much other stuff to, you know, like, like you'll never find anything. So top 10 lists, recommended things, trending lists, those are all very reasonable things for people to go look at because, because they, they are a type of filter that say, hey, focus on these things. The problem is um, there's just because something's in those lists doesn't mean it's worth focusing on. It just means it's in that list. And once it's in the list, more eyeballs come to it. More shares happen. You know, right? What what do you look at? What what shows up on Google News? The things that have the most incoming links, the things that are being shared the most, because that's what it considers to be quality content. It you know, the part of the definition of quality is is large numbers of people communicating about it. But the problem is that when the when when that becomes not only the measure but the very dynamic that drives who's communicating about it. What that means is that it becomes a, a winner take all for attention, but the criteria used to determine who the winner is, who the winner is, isn't the kind of criteria we might want. Like, like is this best for society? Is this information accurate? Is this something that will help make make better decisions? Instead, it's things like, oh, 
Does this get people, you know, does this push people's hot buttons? And as we've seen, and everyone acknowledges this, I mean, all of the social media people acknowledge it, the stuff that gets shared the most is the stuff that gets people outraged, whether or not it's true. In fact, truth or falsehood doesn't have anything to do with what gets people sharing stuff uh, or broadcasting it. So what the internet, what the social media world, and in fact, even even advertisement and everything, what, what this entire system has been turning into is a system that simply amplifies outrage without regard to truth or perspective or information. And then it does all of it in a context where it prioritizes, and, and this has been deliberate design decisions. I mean, BJ Fogg's Captology Lab at Stanford has you know, pioneered this wonderful technology, which uh, they call engagement, but which is literally, I mean, the way they talk about it internally is how do you addict people? And the problem with this is that it relies on things like interruptions, notifications, etc. So people's attention spans, even at a time when what we're amplifying is random content, or, or emotional content rather than content that actually is thoughtful and appeals to our ability to reason and understand the world and react, react in, in positively rational ways to the world. Even at the same time as we're pushing people to make emotional decisions, we are also detraining them to be able to pay attention to something long enough to actually think about it or understand it at any level less than a headline. So I was looking yeah, at- Yeah, I, I, um, I feel a continual underlying urge to- look at something different no matter what I'm looking at. So if I'm, if I'm going to read a paper that's I don't know, 10 pages long, or if I watch a video somehow now, the past few years, I always feel like somehow I'm missing something, which is terrible. And it is harder for me to focus on something for a long period of time. Yeah. It's, it's destroying our focus. It's amplifying emotion. Um, at this point, if, I mean, if you want to write an actual substantive article about something, you know, that's 3,000 words long, no one's going to read 3,000 words. Everyone wants the, the paragraph long version. And then the thing that I've noticed has really been popping up a lot recently that just drives me nuts is suggestions. You know, everything wants to suggest to you things to do. Why? Because some of the suggestions are sponsored and they make money that way. But, but, but think about that for a minute. I mean, one of the things that we know, and there's a book called Persuasion by Robert Cialdini that you can read, read about. It's, it's about the psychology in general and it's applied to sales. But basically, simply having any particular image in your field of vision, whether or not you're paying attention to it, influences what you think about and how you think about it. And, and this is not necessarily the intent. I mean, it might be. I don't think it is. But, but even just the fact that you know, I'm, I'm in a web browser say, and I want to find that article that I mentioned a moment ago about how the internet is a random amplifier. And just because someone or something is famous doesn't mean that that fame has anything to do with the quality of what they do. Uh, I opened my web browser. And the first thing it says is Siri, Siri suggestions. Siri can suggest websites based on blah, 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 blah. Why? I don't need a suggestion. I actually have a brain and I can decide what I'm looking for and I can search for it myself. And as soon as everything starts giving me suggestions, what it's doing is it's biasing the things I'm thinking about, which means that even though I was thinking about one thing, now that I've seen these five suggestions, I might go down in a different direction. Now, the good news is, is maybe it will suggest something that will open up and change my life and make life wonderful and a paradise of absolute intellectual and emotional and social and communal stimulation. But it's not going to do that because there's almost nothing on the internet that does that. That's what you do with people in person. Um, it's what it's going to do is it's going to send me down a couple of articles that will be vaguely interesting that I will feel very good for having read, but which won't add up to anything in terms of new skills or deeper understanding. That's just not the kind of stuff that gets suggested by these things. So, um, so what about, um, I I did want to ask you, there's another layer of, it's all this is that, uh, you know, in speaking to a number of people, it does appear that Google, especially, but all these platforms are censoring results. You know, there was the, Google suggest crisis or whatever you want to call it, where Google for certain terms, uh, depending on what it puts in the suggestions in the search bar, it changes someone's perception of something. You know, one example is supplements are, and a lot of the words appear to be negative against supplements. And you know, I've spoken to, for instance, a number of natural health people that said they've been booted off Google. They don't, you know, they speculate as to why, but it appears that not only these platforms want to capture your attention, monetize it, but then what you're seeing even in search mode, let's say, uh, is, is, it's not just random, it's tailored, it's doctored. What are your thoughts there? So uh, I have many thoughts. Um, uh, and, and I think there's two that are, <laughs> two that are most important. Um, one is 
that it's very tricky because you want, I mean, I want Google to, to give high quality results, but, high, but I define high quality as accurate or, you know, um, um, substantiated or whatever. And there's a lot of stuff, like, especially in things like the, well, in, in anything in which there's money involved, <laughs> um, but, you know, certainly in pharmaceuticals and in healthcare, there's a lot of competing beliefs about stuff. And even right. where there is science, some of the science is pretty darn suspect. You know, when we find out 10 years later that, oh, that thing, you know, that, that study that discredited acupuncture was funded by a pharmaceutical company, you know, whose, whose supplements would, it turns out, have been, have been hurt if acupuncture had credence. And, you know, so right. clearly they weren't, it was not a, an unbiased study. So A, it's actually hard for a Google to, to, to decide what to put in and what to leave out. Um, uh, and I agree that it's hard. I do not agree that because it's hard that they shouldn't be held accountable for the results of their of their system. I mean, one of the things that I, I find fascinating, you know, with like the, the Facebook and they say, oh, it's so hard to figure out what hate speech is. And I'm like, yes, it is. That doesn't mean you're not allowed, that, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be required to do it. Like, and if it's not profitable, I mean, if it's going to hurt, if it's going to, if it's going to kind of kind of, you know, maybe take up the bulk of your $60 billion worth of profit, maybe it should, because what that profit is coming from, it's coming from you skimping and being negligent and doing a bad job. It's not coming from you creating value, you know, not if that value also happens to accidentally come with destroying civilization. Um, uh, You know, and by the way, for people who don't, for people who don't know the ways in which, uh, in which these platforms can be weaponized, uh, just Google uh, Facebook responsible for Myanmar genocide. And it'll get you, you know, the UN weighed in on that one. But Facebook was basically used, was weaponized to get people sharing articles that resulted in a genocide. And I, I, th- I have a problem with that. I have a big problem with that. But in any event, so number one is, um, it sounds like what you were running into was Google's attempt to, attempt to be responsible, except the question is, what does responsible mean? Sometimes, and in some cases, I think it's it's really really hard to know what responsible means, and in this case, maybe Google considered that particular uh, that particular information, uh, whatever it was, to be uh, to be irresponsible because they considered it to be alternative medicine, which they don't believe in, whereas your friends did not, or they considered it responsible or whatever. So that's one thing. So one thing is there genuinely are some hard problems determining what you know what should be listed and what shouldn't be listed. But number two, and this is something that, again, it, I don't understand why people don't understand this. Facebook, Google, and Twitter already censor everything, right? If I want to, like, like I mean, they, they have filters. Now, the filters are automated, but just because they're automated doesn't make them not censoring. Right. The very, the very idea that they try to figure out which things you want to see and only show you that is censorship. Because what that means is, is no speech, no words, no concepts, no ideas that might make you feel uncomfortable will be shown to you. So, right. you know, um, uh, you know, they, like I have a friend at Facebook who I just got into a huge argument with the other night. And, and he said, well, if we were to respect, if we were, if we were to restrict lies in political ads, that would be, that would be killing free speech. And I said, well, number one, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> um, it just wouldn't be killing free speech. I'm sorry. Uh, not, not, not any form of free speech that anyone has ever actually wanted. Uh, but, but more to the point, um, you know, he said, uh, I, I, I said, Facebook already censors. And he said, well, you know, no, it doesn't. And I said, yes, it does. Because you're telling me that a politician who wants to lie to people to get into office by lying should not be censored. But if I want people who believe the earth is flat to be given articles about how the earth is round, you won't show that to them because they don't want to see those. So that's stifling my ability to get my message out. So I'll do that all the time. <laughs> well, we're right. I mean, I mean, the whole algorithm is based on that. You know, they, they are simply not going to show a Trump supporter any of the articles or any of the newscasts or anything related to the, the actual facts behind the impeachment. 
uh, stuff or, you know, the Ukraine charges or whatever, because there is a group of people that don't want to hear that at all. And well, it's, it's not, not even, come not even political, not even political. I know a couple of dentists that want to, that are advertising on Facebook and Facebook now tells them, oh, you can't show before and after pictures of someone's teeth being fixed because it might upset them and make them feel bad about the condition. You can't use the word you in the headline of an ad. You know, are you uh, sleeping well at night? Are you uh, worried about this? Because it calls them out. And they've, they've gone like, I mean, in terms of censorship, like they've gone deep. Right, right. Well, it, it, <laughs> unless unless you're a white supremacist climate denier <laughs> Trump supporter, in which case they'll show you anything you want to see. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think Facebook is Facebook is is kind of insane. And the solutions they come up with, I mean, honestly, there, there are few companies that I have less respect for than that one, because the, the, you know, the solutions, like the things you just described, if you, if you appears in the headline or, oh, you're calling someone out with before and after pictures. I'm like, no, only someone who doesn't understand anything about human psychology or the way humans communicate or communicated could even begin to think that like, 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 who are these people who, who. What it is, is like, oh, it's okay if we manipulate you, meaning Facebook and Twitter, Google, but us manipulating you is totally fine. But you manipulate, oh, no, no, that's not acceptable. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's, that's one of the things I think is so funny about Mark Zuckerberg. Um, you know, he, t- he gave this big speech about how people are so concerned about privacy. So now Facebook is using end-to-end encrypted connections. And, and by the way, he's not, he either is this stupid, in which case he should be removed from Facebook immediately because it is, it is absolutely horrifying to think that someone this stupid would have the kind of power that being the CEO of Facebook he has, whether he founded it or not. Um, but I don't think he's this stupid. I think he's being deliberately misleading. It's not privacy from, from like mysterious eavesdroppers who are eavesdropping on our connection that people are worried about. It's privacy from right. Facebook itself. And, exactly. you know, and I'm like, I, I don't care how encrypted my connection is. What I care about is that you, you Facebook aren't actually deleting my data. That's what, and, and you're and you're selling it to Cambridge Analytica, which, by the way, for people listening who don't know, it has turned out that that Facebook knew that Cambridge Analytica had that data and, in fact, sold it to them. So, it's not, you know, this is this is not. But now that it's um, out of the news cycle, who cares anymore? It's just going right. to go away quietly. Yeah, and yeah, and so so I so I think I think a lot of a lot of the downside of the internet has really come about um, from technology doing what it said it would do. I mean, technology has really enabled us to do a lot of things more efficiently. Unfortunately, one of the big things that it has enabled us to do more efficiently is send large amounts of information to other people with no filtering, no censorship, no quality control, and and allow those people to be targeted such that you can specifically call out people who are the most likely to be deceived and or influenced, right? Because that's what advertising is all about. It's figuring out who, who can be most influenced by your ad and, you know, and, and sending messages to them to get them to do what you want them to do. And when what you want them to do is to buy a Cupid doll, that's a relatively benign, benign thing. Like, you know, I, fine, I, 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 that, that I'm not going to object to that much, although I still think it's a, crappy use of advertising um like i i I would like us to see all of the same technology being used to get people motivated and to take consumers and to trick them into learning more things having more control over their life getting educated developing skills developing social skills learning how to communicate learning how to have satisfying relationships but no instead we use it to get people to buy shit they don't need you know um let's 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 talk about the productivity angle because that's your podcast So I'm sure you've got a lot of, uh, so what does productivity look like in a, you know, smartphone glued to your eyeballs day and age? What what are some things people can do to help themselves? Well, so first of all, the productivity begins with, with understanding what product, what the word productivity means, which is means you're getting the shit done. Excuse me. I've I've been swearing a lot. I I apologize. That's fine. I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to send to you. It's okay. Well, no, but I, I don't, I don't want to be offensive to, to the people listening. Um, productivity means accomplishing the goals. That, in fact, um, I would prefer it if you could edit that, a- edit that out. Cause um, uh, I, I actually don't. Sure, let's just restate it. So editor, you know, when the editor gets this, you know, make a note here and we're yeah. going to restart that question. So go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, so what productivity, what productivity really means is getting the stuff done 
that you want to get done. And not that other people want you to do, not that an ad wants you to do, not that, not that some recommendation from Siri wants you to do, but productivity is getting done the stuff that's important to you that's going to give you the life that you want and the relationships that you want and the happiness that you want and the money and the success that you want. That's what productivity is. Um, what productivity is not is productivity is not simply accomplishing many tasks in a day. And I think, you know, it was once upon a time, back, back when everybody worked on assembly lines, and you know your your daily income was literally how many pieces of you know, how many pieces of of widget can you produce in a day back then productivity was as simplistic as just the more you get done in a day the more you get done however that's not the world we're living in anymore now the more you uh, the you know what it is that you're spending your time doing matters a great deal because there's more than enough to do and you need to be picking out the things that actually move your agenda forward so you know, you ask how you ask in tech, how, how do you do productivity in an age of ridiculous amounts of technology? So first of all, you really need to spend some time thinking about and understanding what it is you're trying to do. So every day, for example, I try to make, to put together my to-do list for the day before I start working. And I'll tell you, it, it, there is no better predictor of having a useless day than whether or not I start with email as first thing. Because if I start with email as first thing, I get distracted. That then leads me to dealing with those important email things that came up, et cetera, et cetera. The next thing I know it's 4.30 and you know I oh, still yeah. haven't started on my top priority. Um, you know, it's funny. I've, I've been in my email account and I've literally said to myself, stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> While I'm looking at the emails. <laughs> yeah. It's, the pull because, of it is, is, is unbelievable. It's irresistible. A lot of times, yeah. and well, it, and it literally is irresistible. It, it cannot be resisted. And again, a lot of that is because they tune these things that way. I mean, they actually strive to make these things. You know, they call it engaging, but but the the other the synonym for engaging in this context is addictive. And and that you know, again, I th- that's a conscious decision made by the people. A design is a design decision made by the people who make these things. So, you know, I mean, Bravo for Apple that they are finally taking privacy into account these days with their more recent uh, advertising uh, operating systems. However, what they are still not doing is concentrating on helping people actually be productive. If they were, they would, for example, not, they, they would make notifications much harder because right now notifica- notifications are, you know, everything notifies. Now they're making them harder, I think, for uh, security reasons, but, but they need to rethink, you know, well, even like the series suggestions, right? So here's something people need to understand. Anytime you are presented with a set of choices that you have to choose between, you have to take your attention off whatever you're, you're trying to do and put it on that choice. And right. so if you're typing on your cell phone and, and autocorrect changes a word, you actually have to mm-hmm. stop what you're doing and look back. And now instead of thinking about the thing you were trying to communicate, now you have to stop and evaluate, is that the right word? If not, can I delete it? Like literally it's throwing your brain in a totally different direction. It's doing it subtly and it's on a small scale. But if it does that five times in a minute, you have just failed to maintain a continuous train of thought for right. in, in the last minute. And that, that is everywhere. And that's one, of the, that's one of my biggest complaints about all of this artificial intelligence who <clears throat> business is so let's take Siri, for example, on the iPhone. For people who don't have an iPhone, Siri is what they have called their artificial intelligence because Apple, like everyone else, wants you to think of their machines as if they were people so that they can manipulate your emotions so that you will buy stuff from them or give them the data that they want in the case of, of hmm. Google. But um, they want, so they want you to think of these programs as machines, but they're not, they're programs, they're, they're pieces of software and they do not behave like human beings. They do not have your interest, your best interest at heart, the way a human being might. They cannot be trusted the way you would trust a human being. They are machines. They are programs. They do what they're programmed to do. They don't necessarily do what you want them to do. And when Siri gives you a suggestion, um, it, it like like one of the things that will it will suggest when I want to launch an app, it will tell me which apps it suggests that I launch based upon analyzing my usage patterns. Now, what that means is uh, in iOS seven, which was five six generations ago of the of the iPhone operating system, you could simply designate, you could say, here are the five people that I call the most. And then when you went to look at, to, to, to say, I want to pop up a call, there they were right in front of you, the five people you right, want to call right. the most. But now that Siri suggests it, Siri is intelligent. 
And what that means is that Siri guesses. And by the way, Siri guesses wrong, almost always. So what it does is it gives me a list of names that I now have to read, decide if they're the right ones. If they aren't, I have to then go find the right one. If they are the right one, well, with my list of favorites, I always knew that my friend Fred was the third favorite down. But now that it's intelligent, sometimes Fred is first, sometimes he's fifth, sometimes he's not even in the list. So these artificial intelligence and quote unquote smart solutions now have put us in a situation where we can't even streamline the way we use our device because every time we open our device, it's different because it's trying to be smart. And what it's actually doing is being stupid because with all due respect to engineers, they don't understand anything about the way people work and they don't understand anything about larger workflow. And they did once upon a time. Apple wrote user interface guidelines in the mid 1980s that were really clear about things like you shouldn't have modal interfaces. You always present the same controls in the same way. You have tremendous consistency so that people can simply use your device without thinking about it. And we are literally going in the exact opposite direction. Every single interaction you have with the device, you not only have to think about the thing that you're doing, you have to make an evaluation about whether you want to follow the suggestions. You have to see where the suggestions are because they all change location, you know, depending upon the smartness. You have to decide whether or not you, you, you know, the autocorrect was right. You have like, right, yeah. like everything about it now carries this intense cognitive load. So this like is my, really- my phone. I have to, I have to program in all kinds of curses to overwhelm the autocorrect when I get a new phone. Because it won't yes. let me curse when I want to. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's in, in many ways, in many ways, I believe that our smartphones and, and our devices are actually hindrances to, to even to, to, you know, quote unquote, legitimate productivity tasks, because among other things, we, we don't consider daydreaming and relaxing our minds to be productive. Although every bit of research that's ever been done in terms of creativity and problem solving says that that, that type of downtime is in fact fairly crucial to being a high performer. Um, and by the way, I'm so what, just as guilty as everyone else. Um, of, you know, yeah, well, you're human. Right. What, are, what, are some, uh, what are some examples of behaviors that you've changed to make yourself more effective and productive and to, you know, to capture your own attention? You know, yeah, so, uh, if you have to write an article, what have you done that's so differently big that one, makes it work for you? Yeah, big, big one is I try to physically separate myself from all of my technology when I'm doing something creative. I get a notebook and a pen, and they now have wonderful erasable pens in all colors uh, by, really? by Pilot. Yes, the Pilot Friction, F-R-I-X-I-O-N line, completely has revolutionized my life. I have a blank pad of paper. It's neither lined nor dotted. It's just blank white paper. And I will sit down and brainstorm. I will outline articles. I will do my creative work on the paper, and I will do my best to keep my phone far away and my computer far away. So I will come, I, I, what I try to do is use my phone and computer like a tool. And what I mean by that is when you want to use a hammer, you don't walk around with a hammer in your hand all the time and then randomly smash it at anything you want to do. It's not like, oh, I want to order dinner. Let me smash my dinner with this hammer because it will help pre-digest it. No, you, you, a hammer is good for hammering nails. When you have a nail, you go to the supply closet, you get the hammer, you come out, you hammer the nail, you put the hammer back. Now, the problem with computers and cell phones is that they're multi-purpose devices. So they're hammers that apply in a lot of different contexts. That's also, by the way, um, so, so, so it's very tempting to keep them with us. And I do. I mean, I'm not going to claim that I don't. I just try to remove them in the cases where I need to focus. But the, very, the, the, the deceptive thing about them is they make it very easy, very easy to switch tasks because you have all those tasks in one place. And it turns out that's bad. Silicon Valley wants to reduce friction, reduce friction, reduce friction under the assumption that friction is bad. Friction is not bad. Too much friction is bad, but too little friction is possibly even worse, right? The ultimate ad, the ultimate ad is an ad that if it detects your heart rate going up when you see it, it magically and automatically buys the thing, right? We wouldn't want that. What we would say is, wait a minute, I want to decide if I want the thing because maybe I don't have the money for the thing. Or maybe I already have three of those things at home. I don't, I don't want to remove so much friction that my conscious choice gets streamlined away out of this. And the problem with cell phones uh, and, and computers, for that matter, is that we can switch from task to task because all of it is right in front of us. And people say, oh, that's so great. We can multitask. I'm not sure it's great. 
I know for me, it's very much not great because it allows me to detract, to distract myself from focused tasks by doing tasks that might need to be done, but that actually aren't that important and that end up distracting me. And so I end up doing a worse job on the focused tasks themselves. So that's why I do what I call, I, I divorce, um, I divorce my computer and, and, or I divorce my cell phone. And I try to, to do my significant, significant thought work and brainstorming on paper. Also, paper engages you very differently than electronics does. Um, I mean, they've, they've, they've done, I, I've, I've read a few studies about this at least, you know, for example, eBooks, you remember things you read in a paper book much better than you remember things that you read in an eBook. And that has to do with yeah. the way that memory works. You know, this is also the same with the interfaces that memory well, I works. It's also easier on your eyes too. I, I don't, reading on a screen, a lot of people I've spoken to feel the same way. Like it's just not comfortable for some reason. The paper is, uh, it's easier to read. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there, so there, there are definitely physical reasons. Um, uh, and then the way it interacts with our psyches, right, is it turns out the way we remember things is we remember the whole context we see something in. So if you are reading a book, you will remember, for example, where on the page a particular concept is. Well, with an e-reader, where on the page something is, is going to change according to, uh, according to where you've scrolled or according to how big mm. the font is. Um, with a paper book, even the thickness, even how far into the book it is, is one of those things that is a little bit of context that enables your brain to categorize and index the information. And that's cool. missing because cool. with an e, you know, et cetera. So basically, um, I try to incorporate paper and physical movement because, again, physical movement operates your brain differently from just tapping on something um, into as much as I can when it's, it's something I need to really perform highly at. So I outline presentations, excuse me, outline presentations, outline articles, do brainstorming, all of that on paper and pencil. What computers okay. and phones really excel at is communication. Now, one of the reasons they excel at communication is they make it so easy to send stuff, right? You used to have to get these things called envelopes and write this thing called an address. And <laughs> then you would have to put, put you have to like, like put your tongue on this sticky piece of paper and then, oh, it's like weird, 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 yeah. weird, right? Yeah. But now you just zip something off. Well, the problem is when there is that friction of having to write an address, stamp an envelope and put it in the mail, you actually think twice about what is important and what isn't to communicate, which right, means yeah. number one, you communicate about fewer things. Because you're, you know what, if I really need Fred's address, I can just look it up myself. I don't have to send a letter to Mary to ask her, hey, what's Fred's address? Whereas with email, right. it's, very easy. it's very easy to decide that your colleague is a simpler and easier source of a solution than you solving your own problem. Um, <clears throat> but number two is with the 39 cent stamps or however much stamps cost, uh, last time I used one, <laughs> with a 39 cent stamp, the... The sender is going to send fewer letters, right? I'm not going to send out 100,000 letters because that's going to cost me $39,000. However, right, right. when sending is free, what happens is everyone just sends a ton of stuff. So the receiver now is where the burden falls. So the internet has shifted the burden from the sender to the receiver. And people keep mm. trying, you know, they're like, oh, we have this new amazing technology that filters your incoming email and tries to figure out what you'll want and what you won't. Oh God, give it a, give it a break. If you want, if you if you genuinely truly want to fix the email problem, make it expensive to send. Because if right. you fix if you, email, yeah. if you fix the receiving problem, then what will happen is that people will simply send more and they will get right. more creative yeah. until yeah. they find yeah. a way into yeah. your inbox. I mean, that's what that's the incentives, that's what the incentives are set up to do. The incentives right now are are for no matter how good people's incoming email filtering is, to find a way to go overboard and to flood it anyway. And and that's because we removed well, too much friction. Well, Steve, we're um, we're just about out of time. So I wish sorry. I could talk to you for like many more hours. No, it's been a good call. I mean, okay, I, I, I'm just sitting here going, "Wow, I've like just totally ranted this whole time. I, <laughs> I should be giving deep, useful, and insightful information, and instead, I'm just like, nah, nah, hate the internet." Well, you are. You're, you're, um, you're, but, no, you're giving things to think about, which is good. So, so for listeners, you know, you have a lot of resources. You've written a number of books. What What's the best way for people that have interest in what you're saying uh, to take the next step? What are your sure. suggestions, Steve? <laughs> so, right. So, okay. So for so for um, so for productivity. Um, 
so for productivity, uh, you can check out my podcast, uh, which is the Get It Done Guys Quick and Dirty Tips to Work Less and Do More. Although I should acknowledge that I'm, uh, I've been doing it for 12 years and I have recently decided that, that it is time to move on. So the archives will be online, but but new episodes are not going to be no new, and there will still be new productivity episodes as part of the Quick and Dirty Tips Network. But but it won't be my show anymore. Um, also, you can go to my website, Stever S T E V E R Robbins R O B B I N S dot com, steverrobbins dot com. Um, and the thing that I would mention, which is the is in keeping one of the things people want to know is how to stop procrastinating. And everyone wants an app for that. And the app is called other people. It's called accountability. Um, I do have accountability groups that I run, which are called get it to done groups. And you can learn about it, get it done groups.com. And they are the best way that I know of actually making sure you get things done. Um, Okay. It's just, it, it's super easy to get stuff done if you do the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is simply to have somebody connect up to you on a Zoom call and say, you want to start your taxes? Take them out, write the first word, I'll watch. And you'd be mm. amazing how quickly you get stuff done. Just boom, done. <laughs> you know, and okay. so anyway, uh, so Excellent. you can check out, check out getitdonegroups.com and check out steverrobbins.com. Well, Steve, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. It's been an excellent call. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.